Continuing with this chapter uh, of the book Being Dharma by uh, Teachings of Lumpur Cha, this chapter is called Understanding Dharma, and this section is called The Trapper's Snare. So, continuing with this, uh, this particular teaching. If you look outside, you won't see. We have it already, if we look. Having been born, it's all here. As soon as things arise, we can see immediately that they're impermanent, leading to suffering, and not ourselves. We see this, and we recognize that we are like this, and others are like this. This is the first step in contemplating Dharma. This is the path that has an end. This is the path to ending birth. This is the path to ending death. If we pay attention, we will know. Just like when we're working in the fields, is the sun high yet? Is the evening coming? Just by looking at the sun, we know. When dusk is coming, there's no more we can do. It's time to return home. When we work, we have to know the time and occasion. If we, pay, if we pay attention throughout the day, then we know. Is it time to go to the fields? Is it time to return home from the fields? If we're looking, we will necessarily see and know. If we're continuously looking at mind and body, we will likewise know. Was it like this before? How is it now? Is it like a small child? If we think like this and investigate, the mind will turn. The heart will become forlorn. It will feel the insecure desolation and loneliness that result from a life of delusion. Continuing to look here will cause the mind to turn over. If it does not turn over, we cannot see the Dharma. Uh, there's a few things there once again. Uh, yesterday we were talking about this quality of Sangvega, the sober sadness, world weariness, as a, a, a painful but wholesome uh, mind state. And again, Lumpur's uh, echoing that here uh, and talking about uh, the, this turning of the mind. And I would say another way of um, describing that is, as I've been mentioning, the shift from the self-centered perspective to a dharma-centered or nature-centered perspective. And that's the, the, the turn, the, the shift of view, seeing things from a, a different angle. And uh, one, uh, one of the ways that you can, you can think of this, if you imagine a, 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 a mandala and that uh, uh, you're, you're looking, uh, you're, it's like a sort of three-dimensional mandala and you're sort of looking at it from one angle or another angle, from different points of view, and it can seem like a sort of confusing array of different elements. And then only when you sort of rise above and you see, oh, the whole thing is symmetrical. It's all actually perfectly uh, integrated and balanced. Oh, when I was down on the ground and just looking from this one spot, it, it didn't seem to fit together, but now, now I can see the pattern. So it's in a similar way. So much of Dhamma practice is that changing the point of view and then you don't have to make wisdom arise. It's like that the, the mind recognizes, oh, that's how it works. That's what's, that's what's happening. That's how it is. Um, and so that then that sense also of um, paying attention and knowing that there are the right time is uh, so much of, of Lumpur Chah's teaching is you know, along these lines of just, you know, look, look and see what we're in the middle of. Look and see how things work. 
and then by that act of looking and exploring and seeing then then wisdom naturally uh, arises and it's because of of not exploring not reflecting just sort of running on automatic so much uh, that we we do as human beings that uh, we don't sort of put put two and two together uh, at least we put two and two together and make three or five or seven <laughs> instead of four also just to, to say the um, contemplating Dharma this is a path that has an end this is a path to ending birth and ending death um, so that, that that languaging that we, we use at the end of, ending of birth and death um, it can seem um, uh, 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 a, a bit, uh, it's a bit strange in terms of a western mindset and it's a, 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 the very much part of the Buddhist languaging of things but uh, uh, when we talk about ending birth and death it's also not that um, liberation is the, the stopping of something that has started but rather that changing of, of perspective or recognizing a different dimension of, uh, of things of how, the way things work so that having been attached to that which begins and ends then um, where there's this feeling of, of spinning around, going around and around, following the same habits, the same, the same issues, just like sitting here on the, the surface of the earth, and the earth spins around, and so we experience morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening, day and night, day and night, day and night. The, um, if, the, if there's a letting go of the world, um, and uh, sort of taking the, a, a, a more um, sort of transcendent viewpoint, then the world is still spinning, but uh, the, the, the point of view is not attached to a particular spot, but can, can see that arising and passing away, but without, without being attached to or identified with it. So in a way, it's ending birth and death, but it's really, uh, I would say, another way of describing that or wording that is recognizing the timeless dimension of our being that's already existent. So when uh, we do the, the, the chant, there is the unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, unformed. If there was not the unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, unformed, then no escape, no liberation from the, the born, the created, the originated, the formed would be possible. But because there is the unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, unformed, therefore liberation from the, the born, the originated, the created, and the formed is possible. So that, uh, in a sense, is a, a way of talking about uh, recognizing or, or embodying that quality of our own being that's already existent, which is unborn, undying. It's not like the unborn, the unoriginated is some kind of, some sort of special place over there. It's talking about a natural attribute of, of our own being, our own jitta, the fundamental nature of, of this life. It's already here. It's not that it hasn't got to be acquired from anywhere else. It's not. It's not anywhere else other than within this very life. So. Uh, the language of ending birth and ending death is, uh, in a way, it's ending attachment to birth and death, and that the the the, uh, the world of things beginning and ending is is carrying on, but the heart is no longer identified with that. It's no longer uh, being born and dying along with those beginnings and endings, but it knows the world without being uh, attached to the world. So that's why one of the reasons why. One of the epithets, the, the titles of the Buddha is Lo, uh, Lokavidu, the knower of the world. And that um, that uh, knowing the world, but not uh, not attached to or limited by the world. So 
it's helpful to have that that understanding that uh, it's not just the the liberation isn't just a, or freedom from from birth and death isn't just the the ending of a thing that has that has begun but it's say uh, the uh, change of view to uh, uh, so that the mind looks at the whole pattern of beginnings and endings from a a, a transcendent uh, position as it were So any questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes. Thinking about um, this, uh, like completeness, peacefulness, these are qualities of our being or our awareness or uh, the mind or mind. Yes, well, <laughs> they're, they're they're all they're all different ways of talking. I mean, it depends exactly how one is using the words, but. It's, um, I would say, that when the heart is free of greed, hatred, and delusion, then the felt sense of the present reality is peaceful, is spacious, is, is, uh, is free. So you can call that mind, but sometimes people think, oh, mind means thinking, or it means uh, the activity of the mental world. But mind is a very, very broad term. Yeah. So the, the, the term... Jitta uh, is often tra- translated as heart or heart mind. Pure awareness. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're all mental qualities. It's, it's an a, a, awareness is an attribute of the the mental world rather than a, a physical, visible object. Uh, so it's, it's an a- attribute of the mental world. So that say so that when the heart is free of obscurations of uh, ignorance greed hatred and delusion then that quality of awareness functions in an unobstructed and undeluded way okay there must be causes things arise from causes when we make efforts to practice dharma we're creating causes for example A husband and wife live together. They experience love as well as disagreements and quarrels. If one of them dies, leaving the other alone, where there was a loving couple, now there's only one. That person will most probably go to find a monastery. Like people who are sick, when an illness happens, they'll immediately think about finding a doctor. If they're not sick, they don't have such an idea. Things that happen thus are called the cause. The feelings of people work like this. If we're living comfortably and happily, we don't think about these things, and the mind will not turn. Likewise, in practicing Dharma, we are supposed to contemplate to the point where we develop world weariness and detachment, but we can't do it. We listen to the teachings, the venerable teachers use different approaches and similes to instruct us, to help us see clearly what's the hair like, what's the truth of teeth and skin and nails, look. Are they fresh and youthful as before? Are they aging? Are they changing? So the Buddha told us to contemplate our bodies. See within your own body. If you see, it's just as if you have an infection, a disease, some unbearable pain. You'll only think about finding a cure for it. You'll naturally want a doctor and medicine. That's natural. If the fever or pain increases and won't go away, this will be your only thought, to find a doctor. But previously, before you were ill, such thoughts weren't relevant. 
If someone had told you to go to a doctor, you would have had no interest. Now there's a cause. Our meditation is similar. We're told to contemplate the hair, skin and so on. These things that we already have, this is where the cause lies. The cause for dispassion, weariness and detachment. There can be knowledge here. There can be delusion here. If there's knowledge, delusion ceases. If there's delusion, knowledge ceases. If there is seeing, blindness ceases. The Buddha constantly talked about contemplating birth, ageing, illness and death. What was that all about? The causes are right here. Speaking about death leads to detachment and dispassion in regard to this life. If you keep on investigating this point, entering deeper and deeper into it, weariness with the world and detachment will come. Investigating Dharma, you will eventually see Dharma, meaning the truth. And when you see Dharma, you'll be able to find peace. Where else would it take you? So again, speaking repeatedly about um, dispassion, world weariness, detachment. So uh, dispassion, uh, viraga. Raga is passion, or the English word rage is connected to raga. Uh, raga, so viraga. In that, in that instance, the v, the uh, the prefix v means the opposite, so not uh, not passionate, so dispassion, and then uh, detachment uh, is translating here as uh, nibida is the word he's translating as detachment. So uh, like the word Nibbana means cool, so Nibbida is becoming cool in relationship to things. So it's not an aversion, it's not a sort of pushing away or a, or a suppression or, or, or rejection, but just that becoming cool in relationship to sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. Um, so very, very similar to the way we use the word cool in modern language, like, oh, that's cool, or just cool, <laughs> or cool down. <laughs> It's a, a very natural term, and the Buddha deliberately used many household terms to convey profound spiritual qualities. So his way of referring to the realization of ultimate truth was Nibbana, as the felt sense of that realization. Uh, and it's, uh, and uh, they, they say, Ajahn Buddhadasa said, Nibbana is not a sophisticated concept. It's like if you just boil the pot of rice, you put it on the side to Nibbana for a few minutes because it's too hot to eat straight away, so you let it nibbana, just let it cool down a bit, and then then it's uh, just uh, just off the boil and 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 good to eat. But so that nibbana is just like cool down, just just chill. Yeah. Uh, Ajahn Kuslo, who lived here back in the the uh, late eighties, early nineties, he was uh, used to run a lot of the the programs for the families, and he made these little stickers. Uh, for family events and days, he was also a very quite gifted computer whiz. He made these little sticky, uh, sticky badges that said, um, "Nibbana is totally cool. Meditate and chill out." And he had a, <laughs> got a image of a, a Buddha sitting in a kind of refrigerator with icicles hanging down. The, the little stickers that people could put on their books or on their uh, on their bags and such like. And I had one for a long, long time. That's why I remember it. Nibbana is totally cool. Meditate and chill out. It's like, well, yeah, that's kind of it. <laughs> it sounds like a casual phrase, but that's really so much of what the teaching is about. So that um, uh, 
often we think of being passionate about things is a is a something desirable and a, a way of in, uh, representing a sense of of engagement or uh, appreciation for for reality and life and that and it's uh, particularly when I was living in California that's something if you're not uh, it was uh, taken as an absolute good if something was exciting well that's exciting you know, and that uh, that was taken to be you know, automatically a, a, a wholesome and beneficial quality, um, or and if that's not very exciting. So to be excited was taken to be a a kind of an intrinsic good. And similarly, and generally in the West, we talk about being passionate about things, re- representing a heartfulness or like a, a sincere, heartful engagement. Or, you know, um, but and then so dispassion can sound like a sort of switched off, or not not caring, or like. Um, a kind of uh, rejection. So it's it's good to ref- to contemplate these these terms and to consider um, how they land in the in the mind. And so uh, viraga literally means like not raging, <laughs> which is that uh, that changes the tone a little bit. Not in a state of 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 rage, and we tend to think of rage as anger, but just sort of raging like a raging fire, not not in a state of agitation and and um, uh, sort of things somewhat out of control and energetic. But so not raging is, is um, uh, a good way of so translating a dispassion. So it's, a, it's representing a, an easefulness, a, a really relaxed quality of the heart, of the mind. It's not a, a, an aversion or a negativity, but like a, uh, so there's an appreciation and attunement to things. And... Uh, a, uh, an openness to things, but uh, not uh, not getting excited about them. So we tend to think in quite dualistic terms that if you're uh, if you're engaged, then you're excited, you're interested, you're passionate, or that you don't care and you're sort of switched off and and you know, you're not in, you're not interested. But the middle way, <laughs> the, which is this very subtle balance, is both being fully interested. But totally cool, <laughs> so that you're attuned and interested and attentive, but not not thrown around by things that are desirable or things that are exciting and or will be sort of stimulating or, or delicious, uh, attractive, or things that are you know painful or, or uncomfortable. There and there's. A, uh, a story that uh, um, I'm not sure where Lumpur Cha got it from. It's probably in one of the commentaries. Uh, I managed to track down a a, 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 a version of it in the the, the Northern Buddhist scriptures um, in Sanskrit, but I haven't found a Pali commentary where it comes from. But it's um, it's during the time when there was a famine. I think when there, uh, uh, there was a famine in Varanja. And uh, there was uh, the only food that uh, the sangha had to to eat. There was uh, was was a brand for horses that was still available. They don't mention what happened to the horses. Don't want to talk about that. But <laughs> 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 the, the brand that had been for the horses is now available for the humans, and so that. But that's all that everyone anyone has to eat. And so that uh, you ha- in in the Vinaya scriptures, and it's a part of the the preamble to one of the major Vinaya rules, this famine in the area of Varanja and how that caused uh, uh, you know, various difficulties. But um, the, uh, 
the the Buddha uh, and the and the rest of the monastic community just have this horse bran to to eat. It's the only food anybody has uh, at that at that time, and um, and so uh, so that's mentioned in the Pali Canon. But this particular incident I can't find in the in the Pali where. Um, uh, in this scenario, uh, Venerable Ananda says to the Buddha, um, "You know, it, it is wonderful. It is marvelous um, how uh, that the you know the 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 the, 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 the Tathagata, you know, the Blessed One, you're you're um, absolutely content with with eating you know the plain food such as such as horse bran. You know, even such a a coarse and unappealing uh, kind of food." Is something that that yeah, the, the the blessed one that uh, eats with with uh, with perfect equanimity, and the the Buddha says, as he often does, not so, Ananda. <laughs> so certainly the Tathagata eats with equanimity, but it's not the case that this has a bland or unappealing taste. And then he, uh, according to this the story from the from the Sanskrit, he then takes some of the food from his bowl and gives it to Ananda and says, "Here, Ananda, eat this." And you will taste things as the Tathagata tastes them. So Nanda takes this handful of, of horse bran and, and puts it in his mouth, and there's this explosion of incredible flavor. It's like, wow, this is extraordinarily kind of exotic and wonderful sort of sensory experience. And Nanda is like, wow, that's incredible, that's amazing. So even said, so this is what the Tathagata experiences, even eating bran. So imagine what it's like when you when we have sort of refined food that's offered by you know wealthy householders and that's very uh, sophisticated and filled with all sorts of spices and whatnot. And so, uh, but even so, that even in those cases, the Tathagata's mind is completely uh, equanimous, even though he has this acute sense of of, of taste. And so that um, that uh, uh, and Lumpacha would uh, would use that that story. Um, uh, and say that when people were, if they were kind of averse to any kind of flavor or, or any kind of sound, any kind of sense activity, they're trying to sort of minimize the sense world. And he certainly he, he supported and, and encouraged living simply and having few possessions, having an uncomplicated life. But he could see that sometimes people uh, in, engaged in meditation, they get very averse to noise or very averse to activity. You know, Lumpur. Uh, can I not join in the work program because I need to meditate? You know, I need to. I want to practice. And can I go and s- stay in a kuti in that quiet that corner of the monastery because it's much more quiet? And that, and he could see he could see that there were sometimes people were their peacefulness was based on an aversion to sense experience, and that the, and he would often, uh, at least in my limited experience being around him, it was when he picked up that kind of. Yeah, the best thing to do would be to. I mean, sensory deprivation tanks didn't exist in his <laughs> uh, in his time. But uh, that uh, when that person says, "If I could just go to a cave where there's no sound and no no light, and, and just and then uh, someone could just bring food once a day, that would be perfect, uh, the perfect situation." So then Lumpur would tell the story. I give that that example. Like, no, it's not a matter of avoiding the sense world. But it's a matter of the attitude towards it, and then talked about this. Uh, this uh, it was one of the standard qualities of a of a Buddha is this acute sense of, of taste. And uh, just uh, uh, interestingly enough, uh, Lumpur Sumato tells a, a story. Um, I haven't heard him tell it for a, a few years, but uh, he used to tell it quite often. 
on this same theme because he had this very a strong pull towards an eremitic life. Even when he was a layman, he used to fantasize about finding a cave on the on the Yangtze River up in the cliffs and just be a kind of meditating yogi and being totally uh, alone and uh, and uh, not bother, not quote unquote bothered by anyone. And uh, uh, after he the, the initial period of time with other Westerners, Lumpo um, Chao had asked him to to look after teaching the the other Westerners that were arriving. And uh, he'd had a very, very difficult rains retreat at the uh, Tamsung Pet Monastery. And as soon as the rains was over, he's, <laughs> he found a good reason to go off on Tudong, go, go wandering down to the central part of Thailand. And he uh, found his way over to this island called Gossi Chang, um, in, in, off Rayong in the Gulf of Thailand. And on this island, there was a ruined Khmer temple, an old uh, ruined temple, and it had a kind of an underground chamber that was totally dark and completely and completely silent inside. And he thought, "Oh, this is great. This is exactly what I this is exactly what I wanted." And uh, so that <coughs> he um, and so he uh, he. Um, uh, found a, I think he had to sort of set things up so he could stay there, and there would be a, a place where he could go to get some arms food each day. But he thought, array alone at last, total silence, darkness, no other crazy farangs, kind of other difficult westerners with all sorts of problems. It's just this is the perfect situation. And then he um, uh, he got cellulitis. He had a, a when he had been in the Peace Corps in Borneo, he had had coral cuts in one of his legs, and uh, some of the the the, the uh, lymph uh, ducts and the, the tissues in his leg were badly damaged from this uh, uh, from these coral cuts and the infections that he had, and it, it came back and he had this this raging um, cellulitis, and so then this this um, perfect uh, uh, kind of sanctuary of, of the 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 uh, underground chamber in the Khmer temple it was like then he could only stay there for a little while and then he had to go off to hospital because he had this raging fever and uh, and was his leg was really really swollen up and then he, instead of having his perfect meditation space he's in this very depressing hospital ward in the in the um uh the the, the I think I guess the Rayong local hospital and uh with his with terrible fevers and his swollen leg and and uh, surrounded by it was a it was a, a monk's ward but most of the monks were not um, uh, say as strict in Vinaya and uh, or as well practiced as himself so he said this is exactly what he didn't want you know, surrounded by a lot of other monks and not very well behaved monks and with the fevers and with his swollen leg and it was a, this is totally what he didn't engineer. And then there was this little voice in his mind said, "I think this is a teaching." <laughs> Something in him said he could have, could imagine what would Lumpur say. He said, oh, having your perfect retreat, Sumato. Oh, how's the <laughs> how's the retreat going, Sumato? You know, and uh, can you learn from this so that that will be you know, Lumpur Chah's uh, encouragement? Obviously, silence and solitude and seclusion have their place. But if you get attached to it, then and and you you want to kind of make it make it your home, your abiding place, then you're setting yourself up for for dukkha. And wisdom is that you can learn from being alone in the dark in a cave, and you can be 
Uh, you can develop wisdom from being in a hospital ward with a swollen leg and a 100 degree fever. Probably more than 100 degrees at that point. So, any questions, thoughts? He did survive, obviously. <laughs> the evidence is with us, but he still has leg uh, problems with his mobility and uh, those ancient injuries to his leg. He got cellulitis, came back uh, many times again in the, in the future. Yes? When you were talking about um, uh, this passion, um, I'm wondering uh, how does uh, this passion relate to um, happiness and is there any sort of discrepancies between uh, sort of a more common understanding of happiness and happiness from a Buddhist perspective? Uh, well, there's, you can talk about it in various ways, but essentially there's two kinds of happiness. There's the worldly happiness, uh, the happiness of getting what you want, which is more like gratification, uh, which is called asada. And then there's the happiness of not wanting anything, <laughs> which is uh, that quality of contentment, uh, santutita, contentment, santuti, uh, contentedness, and uh, and which is what um, in that dispassion or viraga is it's a part of that quality of contentment that you're you're totally okay with uh, in a, a big range a big variety of situations so you know you're still going to have an interest in having the next breath <laughs> and uh, your the, the hunger will arise but still you you can be uh content with that like okay um my, uh, I'm at a high altitude. The breath is short. Okay, it's, uh, I'm looking forward to the next breath, but it's it's harder to breathe now. Or if you're hungry and uh, there, oh yeah, there's hunger. Uh, there's uh, some food would be nice, but if it's not available, okay, just, it's just the feeling of hunger. Get by with waiting a bit longer, or maybe there won't be any more food. <laughs> so that uh, those ordinary appetites arise. Yeah. Also, aversions, discomfort, or, or fear of a dangerous situation. They uh, that you're standing by the side of a busy road, and so well, okay, we'll just wait until there's some uh, things are clear, and then and then you go. Or caution of walking on icy surfaces, like crossing the courtyard uh, when it's covered in ice. Like okay, put your foot down <laughs> very carefully because it's easy to slip over and, and take a tumble. So, dispassion doesn't mean never having uh, hunger or or, or um, never having discomfort or or um, or having or, ple- or pleasure, but rather it's the the coolness of the mind in relationship to liking and disliking, comfort and discomfort. So that that uh, that's the kind of happiness of the of the mind that's free of ignorance. So it's a very different kind of happiness, and both uh, 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 there's a a, um, a number of Lumpur Chah's talks. Also, Ajahn Buddha Dasa uh, talks quite a, a lot about those two kinds of happiness, and that uh, so the he, Ajahn Buddha Dasa sort of is kind of wonderfully 
<laughs> pejorative about worldly happiness as a kind of total stupidity to be caught up in chasing after worldly happiness because it can never really it can never really satisfy and uh, uh, that uh, so he can be quite uh, like you know only a, only a fool would uh, would be looking for for uh, a lasting satisfaction from things that they hear or see or smell or taste or touch you know, this worldly happiness is not really substantial or, or sustainable at all but the other kind of happiness the happiness of not wanting anything of of uh, the heart being free of ignorance and greed, hatred, and delusion—that's the, the like the the happiness of the Buddha, if you like. That's the the happiness of the free mind is is that there's nothing to get, nothing to get rid of. Everything is okay. Is it like an empty? Hmm? Is it like an empty? Empty. Yeah. Yes. The happiness. Yeah. One. <laughs> yes. It's not not needing anything. So it's, it's you can call it emptiness. It's also it's a kind of fullness. It's like uh, appreciating the pumchai, the fullness of the heart. Uh, the um, the Pali word purna purna, which is uh, the Sanskrit is purna, which means fullness. So that fullness, so that, uh, that it's you can say it's empty because it's seeing the the empty insubstantial transparent nature of the five khandhas of you know the body and feelings perceptions and mental formations and so on um but it's uh, again as Lung Po Chao put it uh, you can call it empty but it's also full it's it's full of wisdom it's full of, of the presence of the dhamma so that kind of um that there's no for for that with that kind of of um, emptiness then there's there's nothing lacking there's which sounds a bit contradictory, but there's there's no sense of anything being needed to make this life complete. The heart's awake to its own wholeness. Yes, awake to the wholeness of, of the Dhamma. So, to continue. This is the cause the meditation called establishing mindfulness on the body or contemplating the body. From the top of the head to the soles of the feet, back again from the feet to the top of the head, over and over again. Meditate like this to give rise to weariness and dispassion, to make the mind turn over. For example, you have a family, a home and ample possessions. When everything is going well, the mind is not likely to turn because you are happy and comfortable just as when you're sailing in a boat. If the boat is well built and the water is smooth, who's thinking about swimming? But if the boat starts sinking and the sw uh, swimming becomes important, or could you remain indifferent? Some people ask, what's the deal always telling us to meditate on these body parts? Well, this is how it is for us. If you're sailing along, you might not be thinking that you need to be able to swim, but you're really much better off if you've already learned how. <laughs> if the boat starts sinking... You will, have, uh, will you have any other concern other than swimming? When we meditate on this and really see the truth of it, the result will come by itself. When you really make up your mind through having seen impermanence, suffering and absence of a self in this body, you're called one who has contemplated the Dharma, who is practicing Dharma. When you know this one point, you will know many things. 
Having mastered this point, your practice will roll along unimpeded, seeing instability, unsatisfactoriness, and lack of self in your own body and the bodies of others, internally and externally. The source of virtue is here. This is where you have to look. This is what the Buddha taught. He didn't talk about things that are extraneous, about places people don't go or things people cannot see. He pointed out things that are facts of our own existence. When we sit, these things are sitting with us. When we walk, they're walking with us. When we lie down to sleep, they are lying down with us. Yet having these things inherent within us, even to this extent, we still do not see. It's like, uh, it's like with the skeleton that we keep in the meditation hall. Folks will talk about it. In, in Wat Bapong there was uh, one or two skelet, human skeletons hanging in the uh, kind of in a, a, a little cabinet in the, uh, in the main meditation hall. It's like the skeleton that we keep in the meditation hall. Folks will talk about it, but they really don't see it. Some look at it and feel frightened. They flee the hall. They don't want to look. These are people who do not see. If they really saw, they would know no fear. If you're afraid, where will you run? The skeleton is always right here with you. Think about it. Even if you run away, it's running with you. <laughs> Think about it. Uh, wherever you go, it stays with you. What else is it that you're afraid of? The places of escape are exhausted. So, uh, and yeah, again, he would often talk about that. So you're afraid of the skeleton. You carry one around with you all the time. You go to bed with one every night, you know. It's been with you your whole life. So what, what are you so afraid of? And uh, he could spin it out quite a, quite a bit. But, uh, uh, so this is a, these kind of contemplations. It's like who thinks about going to the doctor if you're not ill? Or who thinks about going to the dentist if your teeth don't hurt? We might have regular checkups and such like, but uh, generally going through the course of a day, we don't really think about our teeth or our, our body if everything is working in a satisfactory fashion. But um, this kind of uh, simple appreciation, contemplation of the body, and also a kind of uh, a, a gratitude and loving kindness towards the body is a really valuable thing. Just to, just to consider, wow, my eyes work. This is great. Yeah, I might need to use glasses to read, but this, hey, I can still see things. Fantastic. Yeah, this is great. And my ears, they're still functioning, and uh, I can walk around. Hey, that's really good. That's really useful. Uh, these uh, muscles uh, uh, respond to will, and uh, and they still the, the joints still function. This is great. I can I can hear. I can move. I can see. I can smell. I can taste. I can touch. Uh, I can balance. How, how remarkable! What a wonderful thing. So you're not taking for granted. I mean, how many of us are thinking, I don't have earache at the moment. Wow, that's great. I mean, those of us who haven't got earache. <laughs> Assuming that no one's got earache at the moment. Wow, that's great. I don't have earache. Or like, oh, my, uh, my right ankle isn't sprained. It's like, why would you think that? But then when your right ankle is sprained, it's like, ah! It's the only thing you can think of because you're having to hobble around and use a walking stick or crutches or whatever. So this is the kind of thing Lumpur is pointing to. Like, okay, if you twisted your ankle, then you notice it. So notice it when you haven't twisted it. <laughs> notice that you haven't got a, a, a speck of dust in your eye. Notice that you haven't got earache. Or the, all of your, your teeth are still functioning, or, you know, most of them. But, uh, 
And so it's like a conscious appreciation. And I, again, I would say to that, uh, not just noting that they're there, but even sort of sending out a thank you, like, thank you, eyes, for being able to do your job well. And thank you. Uh, so glad I can just sort of put the food in my mouth and then forget about it for the rest of the day. That's great. Very convenient. You know, the, uh, uh, and that sense of consciously uh, recognizing that how things work and how convenient and how helpful that is then when they stop working or they get painful you do get earache or your twisted ankle or your guts don't work then you relate to that rather than oh this is uh, this is bad something's gone wrong it's like okay well it was comfortable and functional and now it's gone into a non-functional uncomfortable state okay so that's how it is now and so uh it's it's much more skillful to relate to the body in a comprehensive and ongoing, affectionate, appreciative way, rather than only paying attention to it when it gets uncomfortable. <laughs> and then feeling fear and aversion to the pain and fear of what it's going to turn into. So if the only way you relate to your body is uh, admiring yourself in a mirror or, or judging yourself as, as being un, unadm, unadmirable in a mirror, or that relating to aches and pains uh, with with fear and aversion, it doesn't uh, it doesn't create a very skillful set of mindsets, uh, mind states. But if you develop the sense of uh, appreciating the uh, the unstable and um, fabricated conditioned nature of the body, and appreciating wow how marvelous that it works as well as it does, it's uh, then that not only contributes to uh, to your perspective in terms of dhamma but also i would say it contributes greatly to to uh, physical health as well amateur medical appraisal <laughs> that the the, uh, the the body works well if it's if it's uh, related to with affection and appreciation rather than just aversion and and fear recognizing recognizing this means you see. Then there is dispassion. Oh, things really are impermanent. (laughs) Suffering and not self. When you see a skeleton, you know it's the same as yourself. Sitting there, chewing your betel nut and smoking your tobacco, the skeleton is there. Coming and going, walking around, the skeleton is there. Chattering and gossiping, it's there. It's just like you. In the future, you'll be just like the skeleton in the hall. Everyone will become like this. Before, that skeleton was a living person, just like you. Later, we will, be, we will become like it. Are you afraid? Is this true or not? Where can you run? So, you look at one person, and you know he is the same as any other person, the same as yourself. When you see one person in this way, you understand all people in the universe. We're all the same.